Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and this will be broadcast number 30, for those of you which may be interested to know, and we will conclude, Lord willing, in Acts 13 today, but before we get to Acts 13, I want to just spend a few moments, if I may, looking at some previous chapters, in brief, of course, over the last 30 weeks, because when we get to Acts 13, there are some verses there which get cited by our Calvinist brethren, and if you've ever done any apologetical work, you might be familiar with the piece of scripture which we will look at this morning, but I've made the case over the last 29, 30 weeks that Calvinism, per se, isn't found in scripture, and it's been of some surprise to me that Acts of the Apostles, which is not a doctrinal book, has so clearly refuted it. But you see, it's not down to me to disprove Calvinism. It's down to the Calvinists to prove it. The burden of proof will be on the Calvinists, like the Catholics, like the Muslims. My job as a student of Scripture is not to disprove anything, although that can be done quite easily. But it's down to them to prove their system of belief. So let's start today, if we may, in Acts chapter 2 and build further on my theme that Calvinism, as I say, isn't taught in Scripture, and then we'll further expound as to why that is the case. Acts 2, look at verse 38, please. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter stands up, this is Pentecost, of course, and he says, Repent, change your mind, this is a command, not a suggestion, and be baptized by total immersion, every one of you, without exception, in the name of Jesus Christ, with the authority of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye, plural, shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, which of course will be everlasting life. When the Word of God speaks about a subject, it isn't trying to trick anybody, it is simply speaking the truth. When the Word of God says, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, it means just that. When it says he's able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, it means just that. So here Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is preaching to the Jews at Pentecost, but they have to obey what he is preaching to them. And I'll further explain that in a moment. Look at 39, please. For the promise is unto you, the initial recipients of his preaching at Pentecost, which would be Let's see, a million people went up, we believe, to Jerusalem on 30 AD to worship the Lord, which, of course, is a Jewish feast day. So he's initially aiming this at them. The promise is unto you, those of you which are listening to me preach, and to your children, those that are old enough to comprehend the gospel, those that are of the age of accountability, but in a more generic sense, to the Jews in general, and to all that are far off in reference to the Gentiles, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. This is very much progressive revelation. So the call here is, first of all, to those that have gone up to worship Jehovah, around a million, we believe, for this feast day, to your children, another group of Jews, could be literal uh, descendants of this group of people, those that were old enough to receive it, but as I say, more likely to be, in a generic sense, to Israel in general, And to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. You might ask yourself, why is he starting today's broadcast in Acts chapter 2? We spent, I think, 
an hour and 50 minutes looking at Acts 2 many weeks ago. Well, I'm simply doing this to underline the reality that the Lord wants all men to be saved. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The word of God says how Christ lights every man that comes into the world. Okay, so please keep this in mind because I take the position quite clearly that the Lord Jesus Christ is a saviour of the entire world. Not just the elect, which the Calvinists will have you believe, but here you've got three groups of people in 39 and amongst that three groups of people are the Gentiles, the heathen. Look at verse 40. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. There's the call to repentance. The offer has been made, 38, 39. But by verse 40, the call has turned into the need to appropriate the atonement. The Lord has made it possible for men to be saved. But you have to save yourselves from this untoward generation. How do you do that? You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So that first part of today's broadcast will pretty much take Tulip apart in reference to unconditional election. Here the offer is made to everybody, the Jews and also the Gentiles. Please turn to Acts 3, verse 26. Acts 3, verse 26. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Unlimited atonement for the children of Israel. Building on Acts chapter 2, how the promise is unto you, group one, and to your children, group two, and to all that the Lord our God may call. Three groups of people, and we know from John 12 how the Lord has drawn all men unto him. But here, the context is still in reference to Israel, and this will completely knock out limited atonement. One last time, unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, children of Israel, in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Unlimited atonement, but you have to save yourselves from this untoward generation. And I'm going to keep repeating that theme because it's going to build up to my ultimate hypothesis when we get to the 13th chapter to hopefully underscore how the Lord's offer of salvation is very clearly presented in Scripture and how man has to personally receive it to be saved. Jump over to Acts Chapter 7, please. And let's pick it up, if we may, in verse 38. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel, which spake to him in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, who received the lively oracles to give unto us, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him out from them in their hearts, turned back again into Egypt. Now, keep in mind that this piece of scripture here is aimed at our fathers. Who are our fathers in the context? The children of Israel back in the days of Moses. Not Gentiles, but the Jews. And it says, to whom our fathers would not obey. Whatever happened to irresistible grace, which simply means that God pours out his grace on his elect, and they can't resist it because it's irresistible. But here, his people, his elect nation, are not obeying from the heart what they were told to do from Moses, and it goes into verse 40, saying unto Aaron, make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we want not what is become of him. Free will is simply the ability to do right from wrong. Unsaved people do it every day of the week. Saved people 
do it every day of the week as well. And this group of Jews, wicked, rebellious, would go on to produce an idol, 41, and they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And I showed you from, I think it was Nehemiah, chapter 9 or thereabouts, how they said, this is the God, or this is our God, which saved us from Egypt. Our God being Jehovah, Elohim, and they worshipped that idol. That, of course, is idolatry. But here, the reason I'm citing these verses one more time is to underscore that the children of Israel, God's elect nation, had free will, and they abused it. And they created an idol, and the Lord destroyed them. Not straight away, of course. His mercy is long-suffering. He put up with you and I before we got saved for many a year. And the same would be true of the children of Israel. Look at verse 51, please. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. They had free will, and they abused it. So if you ever get to meet with a Calvinist, if you ever sit down with a Calvinist, and I've done many a time, they will put up this straw man argument that the Lord is sovereign, which of course he is, and therefore man cannot have free will, which is completely erroneous. Man does have free will, and the Lord is also sovereign. The two run side by side. So don't be intimidated if you get to meet such a person because these verses are clearly showing you that God's people, the children of Israel, were able to resist his will. They were stiff-necked and they would go on to disobey many of their prophets and kill some of their prophets. And even their kings were, for the most part, wicked, depraved. And those kings of God's elect nation would sacrifice their children to demons. And I mean literal children. In fact, when they would sacrifice their children to demons, the pagans, this demonic ritual, would entail the drums going. And the drums would be beating at such a volume to drown out the cries of the children that were being sacrificed to Moloch. For example, the owl god. So you can't miss it unless you don't want to see it, that man has free will, that Calvinism isn't found in actually the apostles, and yet this is not a doctrinal book, as I keep saying. So it is quite remarkable that we can discover so much light from actually apostles. But let's go to Acts 13, and let's conclude today's broadcast, if we may. And I pray that Almighty God will bless today's broadcast, that he blesses it abundantly, that it will be heard clearly around the world, thanks to the internet and also the shortwave. And just before we get to the last few verses and conclude this chapter, I should just say that we found in verse 22, the 14th Old Testament citation, as I say from verse 22, we found in verse 33, the 15th Old Testament citation. From verse 34, we found the 16th Old Testament citation. From verse 35, we found the 17th Old Testament citation. And from verse 47, we found the 18th Old Testament citation. And I think that the early church loved the word of God. I love the word of God. And if you are saved, you too should love the Word of God. You should meditate on the Word of God. And I think that the early church spent much of their time studying the Old Testament, Acts chapter 6, along with the Bereans, Acts 17, to further understand the mind of the Lord. We have been called unto good works, and part of that calling and equipping is to 
really understand the Word of God. And that's why time after time, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. I think from memory, Paul the Apostle quoted the Old Testament 80 times, and the Lord Jesus Christ quoted the Old Testament 60 times. That's why it says, Thy word is truth. Thy word cannot be broken. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. And on top of that, if you change the word of God, Revelation 22, if you add to the word of God, Revelation 22, if you subtract from the word of God, Revelation 22, you risk losing your millennial inheritance. And on top of that, we were told in Psalm 138 that God has put his word above his name. And I don't mean Jesus Christ, I mean the word of God. When the word of God is found in scripture, the written word of God is lowercase w. But when it speaks about Jesus Christ, it's capital W. So Psalm 138, verse 2, I think it is for memory, makes it very clear how the Lord has put his word above his name. And yet in Philippians chapter 2, it says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bend, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, meaning God, to the glory of God the Father. So just some additional thoughts to share with you all before we conclude broadcast number 30. And if you're just discovering this uh, broadcast or if you just come across us on the internet or through the shortwave and you'd like to get some of our past recordings please visit our website excatholicsforchrist.com that's excatholicsforchrist.com and you can download any of the last 30 broadcasts i should just say that our material is copyrighted but it is royalty free so you can download it if you wish to it's free to do so pass it around to your friends and family but we just simply ask that you don't chop it up you don't splice it up you don't uh, make it say what it's not saying. And on top of that, you don't make any financial gain for our material. But let's start, if we may, in verse 46 from Acts 13 to get the context. And as I say, Lord willing, conclude today's broadcast. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, jury. But seeing you put it from you, not interested, that's your free will, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Contempt. And that's pretty much mirrored in Hebrews 10. If we trample the Son of God afresh. If we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth. So on and so forth. There's no more sacrifice to sin. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. That's you and I. We turn to the heathen. That's you and I. We're going to go to the Gentiles. The plan of salvation has always been to save the people of Israel. First of all. And then spread out to the Gentiles. John chapter 10 made it very clear that the Lord had many sheep. First of all, it would be the Jews, and later it would be the Gentiles. 47, for so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, 18th Old Testament citation, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. Unlimited atonement one more time. Christ dies for the sins of the entire world. 1 John chapter 2. But you have to personally appropriate the atonement to be saved. I can't stress it enough. In fact, I think Calvinism has probably done more damage to biblical Christianity than any other ism or sect, probably since the Reformation. And I don't want to stand here this morning and completely rubbish the Reformers and what they were able to achieve. I think for those that were in organized religion during their generation, it was a great breath of fresh air to be able to hear the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ being the saviour for the world, dying for their sins, and if they put their faith and if they put their faith in that would be saved. And yet, time after time, 
Calvin goes back to Augustine, who was the first Catholic, who teaches uh, the limited atonement, heresy. He picks it up in Calvin and co have pretty much infiltrated multiple generations of Bible-believing Christians. But I'm not here this morning to take it apart. I don't need to do that. The scripture is clearly taking it apart, I believe. But look at verse 48 for today's broadcast, please. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. That's a verse that gets picked up time after time by Calvinists. And I've heard apologists quote this piece of scripture until they're blue in the face. And what normally happens is they will go to the Greek, Nestle's Greek text, I guess the 26th edition, and they will play with the Greek to further expound their theory that you were chosen, you were ordained before the foundation of the world to be saved. And yet that's not what this piece of scripture says. It simply tells us that this has occurred, not why it occurred, or even how it occurred, or even when it occurred, only that it has occurred. And I can remember years ago listening to an old preacher who's now along with the Lord, and he was a scholar, and people would write to him saying, Dr. Such and Such, you got this wrong, you got that wrong. And they would quote the Greek to this old pastor, this old scholar, and he would write back to such people, and he would say, can you give me the Greek alphabet, please? Can you recite it for me, please? Because most of the time that I've come into contact with people who like to play the Greek game, I know that I'm dealing with people who don't know Greek as they should do. Yes, you can pick out words like kulios, uh, alos, hetros, um, gehenna, tarsis, uh, philios, agapi, and you know, give the impression of being something special. But can you recite the Greek alphabet? Because if you can't, keep your mouth shut. This is the old nature many times in the Christian coming out. Same is true of Hebrew and Aramaic. I don't think we need to go to the Greek to mess with this piece of scripture. In fact, I spent the last 30 weeks on my feet every Sunday morning reading from Acts of the Apostles and just simply allowing the word of God to interpret itself because that's the only way to do it. And when the Gentiles heard this 48, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Let's break this down. And when the Gentiles, not the Jews, and when the Gentiles heard this, heard what? The gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They were glad. They have responded. They've received it. They're not hostile. They're very receptive to this message and glorified the word of the Lord. It sounds to me they've responded to it. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Now, this is a piece of scripture which causes a lot of confusion and uh, sometimes uh, hostility, can I say, from those of us which are not Calvinist, uh, in reference to Calvinists who say, can't you see it? And we get uh, pretty much labelled all sorts of names as to not wanting to accept the Calvinist interpretation of this because what they want you to come away with is the fact that you were ordained before the foundation of the world to be saved. But that's not what this says. In fact, go to chapter 14. Let's get another scripture on this. If you've ever come across a piece of scripture which you don't understand, go to another piece of scripture and compare the two. Scripture with scripture. 14, look at verse 23, please. And when they had ordained them elders in every church, and when they had appointed them elders, and when they had chosen them elders in every church, and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So elders here, are selected from among their people, Acts chapter 6, and then they are ordained. So you see, you have to be a believer 
before you can be ordained to be an elder. You have to be available before you are chosen for service. You see, election deals with service, whereas predestination deals with sanctification. So when I look at Acts 13, 48, I go to Acts 14, 28, excuse me, uh, Acts 14, 23, and I compare the two. So 13, 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, and were glad, they received it, they appropriated the atonement, they've saved themselves from this untoward generation, and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. So you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you are ordained to eternal life, which is what adoption means. I may come back to that thought if I get time. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was published for all the region. That word published, you think published article? I'm going to publish my video. I'm going to publish my book. Such a modern term. This is why the King James is very much ahead of the time. But the Jews stood up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. If you meet somebody who's born again and is on fire for the Lord, he will be called a fanatic. But if you meet somebody who's born again, who's not on fire for the Lord, but is lukewarm, he is called a hypocrite. You can't always win, can you? But here, Paul and Barnabas are on fire for the Lord, and they've been expelled. Another modern word. He was expelled from school. And yet here, once again, the King James is very much ahead of its time. Published 49 throughout all the region expelled out of their coasts. In fact, it was John Wesley who was called a church splitter because he wouldn't play ball. He wouldn't be a good boy. He was very much against organized religion and they hated him for it. And yet, can you name me five priests? Can you name me five bishops? Can you name me five superintendents that clashed with John Wesley? You can't, can you? He's been remembered, but the priests... The bishops, the superintendents that clash with him are long forgotten. Sometimes you have to be a rebel to be remembered. But a rebel for God, a rebel against sin, and a slave to holiness. 51, but they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium. Keep on moving on. If you go to one town and you get shut down, go to another town. If you come up against a great wall of hostility, go to another town. There's many fish in the sea, as somebody told us recently. 52, and the disciples are filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. This is real joy. And they have been rejoicing at being rejected. They've rejoiced at the fact that they've been treated with contempt. And on top of that, they have rejoiced in the fact that the Gentiles, 48, believed and were saved and then ordained to life eternal. Please go to Romans chapter 16. I've got a few moments before this broadcast ends. And Calvinists, one last time, will say that you, if you are saved, are what is called one of the elect. And the elect were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You think to yourself, I'm something special. The Lord saw something in me that he wanted to redeem. And yet the word of God says that God is no respecter of persons. He wept over Jerusalem. He said, you wouldn't come to me. Not that you couldn't come to me, but that you wouldn't come to me. And in Romans 16, another scripture which is good to go to, which gets overlooked, I think, by our Calvinist brethren. 
And yes, Calvinists can be brethren. Calvinists can be saved. You weren't born a Calvinist. You weren't born an Arminian. You got saved by trusting the blood. And then after you got saved, you went into a system. You got caught up in a philosophical structure, which is Calvinism, which goes back to Augustine, the first Roman Catholic, and was picked up by John Calvin, the Pope of the Protestants, a dictator, so on and so forth. But this is the argument that gets put forward, that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. It sounds great, doesn't it? But it's not true. Romans 16, look at verse 7, please. Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles, who are also in Christ before me. They got saved before Paul. They weren't chosen before the foundation of the world. If that were the case, he would have said we all got put in Christ at the same time. He doesn't say that. He says these people were in Christ, Andronicus and Junia, before me. They got saved before Paul. They believed on the Lord Jesus Christ before Paul. So you weren't in Christ per se before the foundation of the world. Yes, the Lord knew you'd be saved before the foundation of the world. And he made the arrangements to predestinate you to be conformed to the image of his son, which is, again, adoption, which goes into glorification. But you were not saved before the foundation of the world. You didn't even exist before the foundation of the world. So Acts 13, 52 will conclude part four of Acts 13. And next week we'll pick it up in Acts 14, which I'm happy to say will put us at the halfway mark from Acts of the Apostles, which is 28 chapters, and next week will be broadcast number 31.